You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are going to continue to debunk vaccine myths, uh, but we're going to focus specifically on the COVID-19 vaccine, since that's obviously a very hot topic these days. Um, Before we recap last week and before we dive in, we are going to do a little bit of a holiday-themed icebreaker, a holiday this or that. So, Andrea, uh, <laughs> big question here. Do you prefer hot cocoa or eggnog? Oh, man. Um, I'm not. I, I, I can't get on the eggnog train. I've tried it so many times, and I'm really, I just, that texture, I can't, and the eggs. But I'm also not a big fan of chocolate. Um, oh, my God. So can I vote for, like, Coquito or something? Holy cow. Okay. You just blew my mind a little bit because I love both of these things as long I, – I agree. If the eggnog is too thick, there's something about the consistency that can be off-putting. But if it's a thinner eggnog, I'm, I'm on board. But hot cocoa, Andrea? Oh, my gosh. All right. Well, my answer, if I had to pick, is hot cocoa. You're voting third party. (laughs) So I'll allow it. Okay, next. Marshmallows or whipped cream? Um, I don't know. (laughs) I feel like I feel like I like marshmallows, but I I think I think I need like a qualifier there. Like, are we talking about Mm. the big squishy marshmallows? We're talking about like Lucky Charms cereal marshmallows. Mm. Um, Everything you're saying is sounding good to me, but I have a sweet tooth. (laughs) I I love, I love those. I've definitely gone through a box of Lucky Charms just picking out the marshmallows. Um, But I feel like whipped cream is more versatile. You can pretty Mm -hmm. much put it on whatever you want and it's delicious. So I'm going to go with that. I'm on the same page. I love marshmallows. And by the way, I'm pretty sure you could buy just the Lucky Charm uh, Lucky Charm marshmallows separately from the cereal, just FYI. Um, but I agree. Whipped cream all the way. I just, you know, shovel it right into my mouth <laughs> directly from the can. I'm obsessed. Um, okay, next. Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? Mm-hmm. Well, as... A woman who's an adult with no children, I feel like neither has a huge impact, but I guess I would have to vote for Christmas Day because it usually involves eating a lot of delicious food, and I'm Mm -hmm. on board with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, Andrew, you know um, I'm Jewish, uh, but I married uh, Ethan, who is – he was uh, raised in a Christian household, so he grew up celebrating Christmas. Um, I've always been super jealous of people who got to celebrate (laughs) Christmas, and I have fully adopted the holiday. He makes fun of me. He said, you know, I'm like a total Jew for Christmas. I'm (laughs) totally obsessed with it. Um, And so I've adopted his tradition, and uh, Christmas Day is the big day in our household, something just so magical about it, the opening of the gifts, and as you said, of course, the eating, just the you know, all-day <laughs> marathon of eating. So 
on the same page. Okay. Um, cookies or chocolates? Well, I think you just heard my spiel that I'm not a big chocolate fan. I do like dark chocolate and I like chocolate that has things inside of it. Like I'm a sucker for a Mounds bar, really good Mm. toffee bar, but um, cookies are, you know, there's so many different flavors and varieties and textures. And I'm obsessed currently with macarons, Mm. um, both, both coconut macarons, the Jewish ones, and also French, the macaron. Uh, as well as holiday spritz cookies, anything with almond extract in there and butter is just, I love it. You've killed me. You said butter. That's that's a trigger word for me in a very good way. Um, I, by the way, could talk about that. We could have an entire episode. This is making me so happy right now. Um, okay, so I'm not a big cookie person. <laughs> um, I know, I just blew your mind. I do love rainbow cookies. And oh, you yes. so, so Ethan is from California. He'd never had a rainbow cookie before. You have to bring him to Arthur Avenue in the Bronx. Uh, for realsies, I do. Um, so yeah, so unless it's a rainbow cookie, I have to vote chocolate. I'm a big fan. Um, my favorite thing, chocolate-covered caramels with um, like a sea salt on top. Oh, yeah, Holy. that's good. Cannoli. Yeah. Um, okay. Last one. And then I promise we'll get to the science. Do you prefer to get gifts or give gifts? Oh, I definitely prefer to give gifts. I get like giddily excited seeing someone unwrap a present that I felt like I was super clever about and was something really thoughtful or something that really like, you know, is just going to be a perfect find for them. And I just kind of sit there like a little kid even to this day. Totally on the same page. I think giving gifts is my love language. I put so much thought into every gift. You know, there's some deep meaning or whatever. And if you mention something to me once that you like something, it stays with me and I will do my best to gift it to you. So yes, nothing brings me more joy. Um, Okay. Well, that is our little holiday icebreaker. We hope um, you're still listening. (laughs) (laughs) let's let's dive in i'll just start uh, you know with a very brief recap of last week um well really the whole reason we're we're doing this series on debunking vaccines maybe let's just start there um it's because we know that vaccine hesitancy is such a big problem um so much of a problem that the world health organization named it as one of the top 10 threats to global health in 2019 um the reasons why people choose not to vaccinate are complex uh, but lack of confidence in vaccine safety really with an emphasis uh, on concerns about adverse events has been identified as one of the key factors. So that's really what, um, you know, prompted us to do this series on uh, debunking myths. And last week, we focused specifically on adverse events. Uh, We spent a great deal of time on the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, VAERS. We talked about uh, how adverse, well, there's a myth that adverse events uh, or adverse effects are worse than the actual disease that vaccines are intended to prevent. So we talked about that um, and we debunked that. We also debunked that the COVID-19 vaccine changes DNA. That is 100% false. Um, Andrea, you did a really great job breaking things down, (laughs) talking about mRNA and DNA. So if you missed that, definitely tune in. Um, And finally, we debunked um, the fact that the vaccine, that the COVID-19 vaccine affects fertility. And there's zero evidence of that. Anything to add? Did I miss anything, Andrea? 
Um, no, I don't think so, Jess. You know, certainly we talked about um, side effects in the context of the COVID-19 vaccine as well. But of course, that's lumped into, you know, the big chunk with regard to adverse events and reporting them. So in between these episodes, we hope that you follow us on social media. We're very active on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn uh, because things are just happening so rapidly in real time. So we have these posts where we debunk these myths um, pretty much. I think we're putting out about two posts a day. So um, if we're not covering it on the pod, we are almost certainly covering it on our posts. So please uh, feel free to check that out. Um, Give us some love. Share our post if you can. It'll cheer us up from all of the very angry posts where we get <laughs> accused of being pharmacials and sheep. So <laughs> those are my favorite posts. I know yours too, Andrea. <laughs> all right. So let's dive into our first myth, which is that the that we rush the development and testing of the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, I think, you know, while I, I think we have to spend some time sort of unpacking this, I do understand why people have this concern. If you don't really understand the ins and outs of clinical trials, um, I could understand thinking that this was rushed. But um, let us put your minds at ease. So I'll just really set the stage here and then Andrew. Andrea, maybe you can take us through um, some of the details of of preclinical studies and, and how it relates to this particular vaccine. So to design and deploy a new vaccine, obviously, um, research, development, and manufacturing all have to occur. So in a traditional timeline, we spend many years in that preclinical phase, identifying the best target for the vaccine. So which component of the pathogen uh, will generate the best immune response? So we conduct animal and in vitro studies, and we publish various paperwork. So all of that happens in the preclinical phase. Once that wraps, that's when the clinical trials can proceed. And there's phase one, two, and three human clinical trials that happen consecutively. During clinical trials, small-scale manufacturing is created to address the demands for the trial. Uh, But typically, large investments in manufacturing infrastructure aren't made until the end of a phase three trial. So what does that mean? It means that there's a lot of stagnant time in the course of a traditional timeline. Um, Anyone who's worked, I think, pretty much in any field can imagine the the amount of bureaucracy that has to be managed, the amount of paperwork that has to be filled out, and a whole lot of waiting. But things are different in the case of a pandemic, and we're able to expedite this timeline and do so safely. So, Andrew, I'm going to turn things over to you, but in a nutshell, um, preclinical studies, so these animal models and clinical trials in humans can occur at the same time. So we're doing these phases or, you know, the phases are proceeding concurrently. So Andrea, can you walk us through this a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So in the case of the COVID-19 vaccine research and development, um, of course, this is no ordinary situation. And as Jess mentioned, a lot of vaccine candidates sit in preclinical for years. Some never move out of preclinical. Um, a lot of the time spent in preclinical development is trying to figure out um, best delivery methods, best dosage. Uh, they're testing in different species. They're working with different um, p- possible targets. So different targets for the vaccine are going to trigger the immune response in different manners. Now, 
in the case of a pandemic, there's a lot more push to expedite that. And because we had decades of research into very similarly related viruses, so those would be the viruses that cause SARS, um, and that virus is called SARS-CoV-1, and MERS, which is called MERS-CoV, and then COVID-19, the virus is called SARS-CoV-2. They're all in the same family of coronaviruses. They're not exactly the same, but they're similar enough that the decades of research that we've done with those two related viruses enabled us to bypass that whole target identification phase. So instead of taking different components of the virus, or in the case of the mRNA vaccines, taking different sequences of mRNA that that determine different proteins um, and seeing which ones work the best, we already kind of knew. We already had um, a good foundational platform of data that suggested that this spike protein that you guys have all heard a ton about, I'm sure, was the predominant protein that is um, activating our immune system. And, and that component, we call that an antigen. So the antigen, if you recall from our very first episode, is what elicits our B cells to produce that those antibodies. So that's what our immune system recognizes. So we were able to really bypass that whole, you know, years-long phase of preclinical target identification because we already knew what was the likely target based on the related viruses that cause SARS and MERS. So we were able to reduce that, and um, then we were able to actually run the, the animal studies at the same time as the phase one clinical trials. So we're able to do the the preclinical research or the p- preclinical screening at the same time as the early human trials. Mm-hmm. Now, on top of that, this mRNA technology that that is being used for these vaccines, um, we've been doing research with those for decades as well to develop that technology. So we were we didn't really have to start from scratch, even though it seems like we are. Um, in addition, typical vaccine manufacturing pipeline takes a long time because often we're growing a lot of virus and it takes a while to grow the cells that we have to then infect with the virus and then grow the virus and then harvest the virus and then purify the virus. So there's all these steps. In the case of this RNA vaccine, all we're doing is synthesizing a bunch of these RNA molecules, which we don't need cells for, we don't need virus for, we we just have this sequence and we just manufacture it in the lab with the reagents we need. So the manufacturing process is exponentially faster on top of that. Um, so all of those steps, all of those processes enable us to accelerate the timeline without compromising the integrity of the research. Now, Andrew, we get asked all the time, you know, how is it that we normally vaccines take over a decade, let's say, to to develop? Um, We did this in less than a year. You know, why don't we do this for all other vaccines? And and, you know, I think it's really important. um, So, yeah, by running these phases concurrently, as you just said, you know, we are able to safely and appropriately evaluate, um, you know, the safety, dosage and efficacy because every moment is critical in a pandemic, right? <laughs> so, you know, instead of waiting to the, for the end of these clinical trials, um, this manufacturing infrastructure is built before the clinical trials begin, as you just said. I'm just restating. Um, however, these accelerated timelines are financially very risky. Um, it requires multiple costly activities to be conducted 
to be conducted without knowing the outcome of the vaccine research. So because of that, because of these costs and because of this financial risk, we don't do this just for everything, right? It doesn't occur unless a situation like the one we're in now, you know, a pandemic necessitates it. Um, So just wanted to point that out that, you know, really the pandemic necessitated this fast tracking. um, But again, it's not that things were, you know, we didn't uh, sacrifice anything. It's that things were done concurrently, but we did take on, there was risk there. Um, But, and we took on that risk because of the, um, you know, the fact that we're in a, in a freaking pandemic. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Jess. And, you know, there are some companies that are getting governmental funding to kind of de-risk that a little bit, enable them to scale up that manufacturing. Not all of the companies that are working on vaccines, but some of them. Um, but ultimately, it's, yeah, it's, it's at-risk manufacturing, which basically mm-hmm. means that anything that they manufacture and infrastructure that they had to create for this specific vaccine, if those preclinical and phase one trials were deemed to be either ineffective or unsafe, all of that is garbage. So that's all tossed away, um, lost money, all of that. Um, And there is that mandatory two-month waiting period for safety before you can continue to proceed um, you know, after the the phase one trials. And so everything's just kind of, you know, in limbo, waiting for that, that data to be, you know, analyzed. And, you know, those patients that participate in the phase one are monitored for two months to ensure that there's no longer term adverse effects. And ultimately, it could happen that, you know, they say there was an ad- adverse effect, you can't proceed. And, and all of that work that you've done, all that money you've invested is gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So just to recap, um, the fact that we're in a pandemic really um, changed things, right? So instead of doing the trials consecutively, we're doing them concurrently, but they're all still being completed. No corners were cut. Um, as you said, Andrea, we also built upon um, previous research on other coronaviruses, such as SARS and MERS. Uh, that gave us a running start. Um, and also the M- mRNA research that's being uh, employed by the, you know, top two vaccine, COVID vaccine candidates, um, we have, you know, three decades of research. Uh, so it's not like we started from scratch. So all of those things allowed us to safely expedite um, the timeline for COVID vaccine development. Anything to add here? I don't know if you wanted to talk a bit about um, the specific trials or manufacturing or anything, or do you feel like we we covered it and we should move on? Yeah, let's go ahead and, and move on to our next myth. You know, maybe we'll do a, a, a social media post kind of highlighting some of the key details about the different phases of the clinical trials in case people are interested. Oh, cool. That's a great idea. Um, okay. So let's move on. This myth is related to the myth that we just talked about. Um, RNA vaccines are brand new. Um, Andrea, I know that you have a lot to say about this. You have some specific examples here. Um, I'll just set the stage and say that, uh, no, this is is not true. So while these vaccines are the first to be officially deployed for human illness, um, this is not a new technology. And in fact, mRNA technology um, as vaccine and disease treatment began in the 1990s. Um, And for me, Andrew, when I hear 1990s, I just always think, oh, that was 10 years ago. I I think so many of us do this. That was 30 years ago. (laughs) I know. (laughs) 
<laughs> three decades worth of data. So um, I know we overcame a lot of hurdles to, to get here. Can you talk us, to take us through this a little bit? Yeah, sure. So, you know, RNA in and of itself is is a, a molecule that serves as this intermediary, right? We talked about this um, last week, and obviously we've talked about this in several posts, but RNA serves as this kind of um, um, set of notes that's built off of the DNA that an organism contains in their genome, and it serves as this temporary template for proteins to be manufactured based on the sequence of that RNA. And so something inherently challenging with working with RNA is that it's very unstable. It's not meant to last for a long time. It's not meant to hang around uh, for a long period of time. So the the fact that it isn't is itself transient to begin with means that a lot of the RNA technology research um, was invested in trying to figure out ways to stabilize that molecule, um, both for time and for temperature. You know, we know that the Pfizer vaccine has to be stored in ultra cold because of the instability of RNA. Um, so the RNA really, it has to last long enough to be converted into a protein. And then that protein is going to be displayed to our immune system cells to recognize it as foreign. Um, and so the next challenge there is to then figure out how we're going to get that to occur. So we have to make sure that the protein that's produced is then presented appropriately so that the immune system cells will recognize it as this you know, mimic of the pathogen, elicit that immune response, and then mount an appropriate immune response. So there's all these different pieces of that puzzle. And, and some of those challenges are involved with, you know, what sequence of RNA, how do we modify the RNA to make it more stable? How do we deliver it so that we can improve stability? Um, how do we ensure that it doesn't get degraded once it's injected? All of those sorts of things. Um, so that's been really the crux of the the three decades of research that have gone on, um, you know, into RNA vaccine technology. And Andrea, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe that compared to traditional vaccines, it seems that mRNA vaccines can actually generate a stronger type of immunity. Um, I was reading that they stimulate the immune system to make antibodies and immune system killer cells, which is a double strike of the virus. Now, is that just... Is that accurate? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, so you have obviously you have a lot of players in the immune response to a viral pathogen, and of course, antibodies. We hear a lot about antibodies are only a small part of the story. And so, in this communication network that you have with your immune system, you have a lot of different players. And um, it seems that these RNA technologies, these RNA vaccines, are also activating our T cells. And we have different types of T cells. We have ones that we call cytotoxic, which are killer cells. And we have ones that are called helper cells. And they, again, work in concert with each other, um, as well as parts of the innate immune system um, to mount this defense and, and protect us against the actual virus itself. So basically, we have about three decades worth of painstaking research done by brilliant scientists like Andrea <laughs> and other immunologists and bench scientists um, to, to bring this mRNA vaccine technology, um, you know, from something that was theoretical to actually applying it, right? So for years, these companies built the platforms that could theoretically be used uh, to create a vaccine for any infectious disease by inserting the right mRNA sequence for that disease. And so here we are in 
good old 2020 and, you know, along came COVID-19. And once scientists determined this, the structure of all it, uh, its genes, including the genes that make the, the spike protein, um, and again, this is my layman's understanding, Andrea, but, you know, once all that was determined, scientists began working on the design of the actual mRNA vaccines that we are now seeing deployed. So again, you know, that we tested it in animals. Now we've tested it in over, I don't even know how many people, I know we're at over 75,000 participants in these clinical trials. And so just 11 months after the discovery of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, um, we have these incredible mRNA vaccines um, that we are deploying. And Previously, I, I was reading um, that no new vaccine has ever been developed in less than four years, and we did so in less than one year. So pretty incredible stuff. Um, not a new technology, but we've shifted from these, you know, from theoretical to actually having a vaccine that relies on this technology. Um, yeah, Jess, I just want to jump in because obviously we, we do have other vaccines that that we've tested. Um that are RNA based. So we we have developed vaccines for other viruses like Zika, rabies, Ebola, HIV, dengue, influenza, respiratory syncytial virus, pap papillomaviruses, hepatitis C, cytomegalovirus, a lot of them. Um, and most of them moved into animal models. So mice, uh, non-human primates like rhesus macaques, ferrets, pigs, guinea pigs, um, and many of them actually moved into early stage clinical trials. So these all existed before the pandemic happened and before these COVID-19 RNA vaccines you know, were developed. So we've been testing these. We've been working on these for many, many years. Um, the challenge with them is not, as I mentioned, RNA is very unstable. So it wasn't that the vaccines themselves were dangerous or they had really significant side effects. But in these examples that I gave, they were just not that effective compared to the more traditional vaccine technologies. Um, so there was one example, there's a vaccine called CV7201. This was a human rabies vaccine that was an RNA-based vaccine. Um, and the phase one trial actually completed in 2018. Um, and, and some of the information that came out of the preclinical and the clinical was that um, needle delivery, so an injection of it actually led the vaccine to be less effective than an alternative delivery, like something like uh, a nasal spray or an inhalation. So because RNA is so challenging to work with, um, many of these earlier RNA vaccines were just not that effective because we were trying to figure out the best way to deliver them. Um, and that's really where these lipid nanoparticles have evolved from. So the, the, the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine, both the RNA is contained inside these lipid drops that we've discussed. And there's four different fats that self-assemble into these capsules that help shuttle the RNA and protect it from degradation. And these lipid particles have also been shown to be effective in vaccine trials with Zika and Ebola RNA vaccines. Um, so it's really interesting that that technology that we're seeing now in implementation um, with the COVID vaccines has also been demonstrated to be very effective with other RNA vaccines that have been developed in previous years. 
Absolutely incredible. So my main takeaway from this is that this is not a new technology. It has been rigorously studied even before uh, COVID came around. Uh, but basically, the whole world uh, poured their time, energy and attention into um, developing this this vaccine. And, uh, and so yeah, so I, I guess, long way of saying that I, I think that we've successfully debunked um, this <laughs> idea that uh, RNA vaccines are brand new, and that this is a new technology. Yeah, I think so. Okay, alrighty. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's move on to our next myth. Um, Okay, so there's this myth swirling that appropriate animal tests were not conducted and that animal trials were skipped entirely for the the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, This is just total nonsense, total misinformation. Um, Earlier in September, Pfizer released animal trial data um, for mice and rhesus macaques. Um, Data is in peer review for publication as well. Uh, Moderna released their animal trial data in July. Um, So in fact, both were given approval to simultaneously test their vaccines on animals while they were conducting phase one trials on humans. So again, this is like what we were talking about earlier. Instead of doing things consecutively, we were doing them concurrently. So the two leading vaccines were, in fact, tested on animals. They were tested on macaque monkeys and mice. Um Typically, the preclinical animal phase is done prior. Again, this is why the whole um, development pipeline for vaccines usually takes longer. But because we ran them at the same time concurrently, we were able to expedite things without compromising any of the research and development steps. Um, Andrea, would you like to add anything? Yeah, no, I mean, it's it's pretty it's a pretty straightforward myth to debunk. Um, <laughs> right. You know, in addition to that, obviously, we we you know, these vaccines went through phase one, two and three clinical trials, and they've been tested on thousands and thousands of people as well. Um, the question has come up about pregnant and nursing women because they're routinely not included in tri- clinical trials, which is not unique to the covid vaccine. It's it's the case for for most things, because um pregnant and nursing women, their immune systems change. And so including them would lead to potential confounding variables with these trials when you're comparing women to women. Um, And so an additional set of animal studies called DART studies, which are developmental and reproductive toxicity studies, these will determine um, or these will continue to evaluate in animal models things such as prenatal development, lactation, fertility effects, et cetera. And none of, again, none of that that is being, um, you know, skipped or or ignored or avoided in these um, vaccines. 
So to recap, we've debunked this myth. Animal tests were conducted. It's just that they were conducted simultaneously um, and concurrently with the human trials um, instead of consecutively, as is usually the case. And again, it's because of the nature of a pandemic. Um, Okay, Andrea, this next myth has uh, your name written all over it. Can you... Take I'll try not to get too into the nitty gritty. Maybe that'll be again, a follow-up post, but there's obviously a myth circulating. And, and unfortunately it's been promoted by some very high profile folks, uh, both in, um, pop culture, but also in politics that, um, people only need a single dose of these vaccines, either the Pfizer or the Moderna. Um, and, and of course I want to just say outright that this is not true. Um, they're both, they're both using a two dose regimen. Um, now this myth has kind of taken root because there is some promising data after the first dose of these vaccines. Um, but ultimately you need that second dose. So initially we're seeing that, um, in the FDA interim and, and early data, um, the Moderna vaccine was seeing 80% protection um, and the Pfizer vaccine was seeing 82% protection after the first dose. However, if you didn't get your second dose, the protection decreased substantially to about 50%. And that's in very distinct contrast to if you did get that second dose, your protection went up to over 94% for both vaccine candidates. And the reason behind this is simply how our immune system responds. So typically, the very first time you see something that's foreign, it's a foreign invader, your immune system sees it, recognizes it, and it starts this immune response like, hey, what's going on? So you mount this primary immune response to this pathogen, or in the case of the the, the vaccine, this, this mimic of the pathogen. So you mount that immune response, you produce some antibodies, you start to activate some of your T cells, you start to establish some memory, but then it's going to decline. And if you don't give it a little boost, that's why we call that second vaccine a booster often, you won't amplify that. So by getting that second shot, you exponentially increase the uh, potency of your immune response and the robustness of your protection. So that second exposure after that primary immune response starts to decline, which is why we get those second shots three or four weeks afterwards, that enables us We've primed the immune system, and then we boost it with the second shot. And that's going to really shoot up levels of antibodies, antibody production, memory T cells, and all of those things that are going to ensure that we have adequate and appropriate long-term protection for when we actually do encounter the virus. Mm-hmm. So my takeaway is if you want this incredible, you know, almost 95% protection, um, you most certainly need both doses of the vaccine. Um, go big or go home. Why would you quit halfway? <laughs> right? It doesn't make any sense. Andrew, we got this question and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I don't know um, if you have an answer to it, but someone asked, and actually a couple of people asked, what if you got, you know, the Pfizer vaccine first? Could you get, could your second shot be the Moderna vaccine? And I don't really know why someone would do that. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to say. Theoretically, it, it, it could be 
equally protective. The the two RNA sequences are are relatively similar. They're both encoding or they both the template for that spike protein. So in theory, the protein you're producing in response to either vaccine is going to be similar. Your immune system would recognize them both as relatively similar. Um, so in theory, you should boost a similar immune response. Um, but of course, you know, we haven't tested that, right? That wasn't part of clinical trials. They're two different vaccine manufacturers. Obviously, they have, you know, stakes in their game and they don't really want to cross test. Um, right. But that discussion has come up because, of course, you know, there are going to be rare adverse events where maybe it's not recommended you get the second dose of the vaccine you received. So then people are like, well, maybe I could get the second dose of a different vaccine. So, you know, it's hard to say. Um probably unlikely to have a really serious adverse event. Um, it's hard to say if you would have equivalent protection, though, which I think is the biggest question. Um, and then, of course, there's logistics, right? We're seeing that these vaccines are going to have um, vaccination proof in a card form. So if you're getting a single dose in one and then you go elsewhere and you try and get a single dose of another, that's obviously going to confound, you know, paperwork um, as well. So, you know, obviously we want to stick within the vaccine that that we are getting once we have access to that vaccine. Um, but I am curious to see how possibly some additional data may play out. I don't know where they're going to get that data, um, but it is an interesting, um, you know, thought piece here. Right. Right. Okay. So we don't have the the data that we would need to say so definitively. It sounds like theoretically that that could work, but we can't say so without the data. That's not right. what, what's been studied in the trial. Yeah, absolutely. So Andrew, you brought up allergies. So I think we should move on to our next myth, um, which is that people with allergies can't receive the vaccine. So let's just take a step back. Um, allergic reactions in general are rare side effects of all vaccines, not just specifically the, the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, and of course, we see allergies, you know, allergies are just caused by an overreaction of the immune system to something typically harmless. So this could be, yes, we see it in vaccines, but we also see it, um, you know, environmental triggers, pet food allergies, of course, other medications and treatments. So this is not something that's specific to vaccines, and certainly not specific to the COVID-19 vaccine. Um, so as I said, uh, allergic reactions are very rare side effects uh, to vaccines. We see typically occurring about one in a million people. Um, and really, we, we tend to see these reactions in people who have a history of this response. So why are we talking about this? The CDC has acknowledged that there were two healthcare workers in Alaska who received the COVID-19 vaccine and reported anaphylaxis. Uh, the CDC is aware of this. It was picked up by the VAERS system, and they're currently investigating. Um, this also comes after we, we learned that there were two allergic reactions reported in the UK. Um, those two individuals had a known history of allergies. They actually carried uh, adrenaline auto-injectors or EpiPens with them. Um, so again, this th we tend to see th these reactions in people who have had similar reactions in the past. So it's worth noting that thousands of doses have already been administered since the author authorization of this vaccine uh, across the, well, it is it, um, I know the UK and the US, I think also Canada, I don't Canada, know. Yeah. Health Canada. Um, yeah. 
I don't I don't think there are any other countries that have officially rolled it out okay. yet. Um, but, but I, I, we mm-hmm. should double check that. <laughs> we should double check that. Right. Um, but again, you know, of the tens of thousands of people who've already received the vaccine, we've seen these four reactions. And I think I, Andrea, I hate, you know, misspeaking when I don't know for sure. I think three of them were anaphylactic. I think one of them was milder. Um, I don't know. Anyway, um, but we know the vaccine has undergone rigorous clinical trials and safety training. And this reaction is not at all typical in the general population. These people are outliers. So the the cases reported to the CDC um, appear to have been more severe, but in the case of most allergic reactions, symptoms are pretty mild and include wheezing, hives, and swelling. And yeah, these are not fun things to experience, but they're typically short-term, treatable, and harmless. Um, Andrea, did you want to add anything here? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, we we also or the the clinical trials also planned for this so you know in the Pfizer BioNTech so we're talking about the the Pfizer vaccine of course cuz Moderna hasn't started to roll out yet um but there were 6000 trial participants so that's f- over 14% of the cohort in the clinical trial that were enrolled with known allergies to food um pollen or other allergies such as other environmental allergies and they had a broad diverse range of severity so some had very mild allergies some had you know full on anaphylaxis um and this is a substantially larger proportion than what we see in the general population only about 1.6% of Americans actually have allergies to these types of things um, and, and in the trials, which included again, 6,000 of these participants, the vaccine was well tolerated. Um, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning again, that, you know, these are overreactions to harmless, um, things. So, you know, right now the, in the U S at least, um, the CDC, so centers for disease control and the food and drug administration, the FDA has recommended, um, that those with a history of severe allergies should still receive the COVID-19 vaccine. Recommendation is that they should do so in a medical setting um, so that they can be monitored in case there is a reaction that they need to, you know, receive some, you know, supplementary medication for. Now, it's worth noting that this is true for these individuals with severe allergies for all new medications because their body has a tendency to overreact to the things that are normally extremely well tolerated by the vast majority of people, they're always monitored um, when they receive something new for them. Um, right now, the only people who should absolutely not receive the vaccine are people who have known allergies, known severe allergies to ingredients of the vaccine itself, or who have a, a severe allergic reaction to the first dose of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um well, I, I was just going to kind of restate what we just said, and then I think you wanted to make a, a distinction here. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, okay, so I'll just recap and say: so can you know people with allergies can receive the vaccine, right? Unless you have some, as Andrea just said, severe known um, reaction to any of the ingredients in the vaccine. Um, Allergic reactions are extremely rare. Um, We've, yes, we've had a couple of these cases crop up. Again, these are outliers um, in the majority of, well, I, I only know two for sure of the four. I can't speak to all four, but two had known histories of these types of reactions. So if you know that you've had some allergic reactions, 
reactions in the past, it's probably a good idea to get the vaccine um, in a clinical setting where you could be monitored. So not in, you know, not in a pharmacy, for example, maybe having it done in your doctor's office, if that's an option for you. Um, so I think we put that myth to bed. Uh, Andrea, I know you wanted to, um, to say something here. Yeah, I just want to differentiate um, allergic reactions from other immune system issues such as being immunocompromised or immunosuppressed. So that's when your immune system is um, not as functional as it should be. So it's it's not as reactive. It's not mounting as prominent response. Um, that's that can often be because of cancer treatment, or you're a transplant recipient, or you have you know a disorder that leads to that. Um, and and it's also distinct from autoimmunity. So autoimmune disorders are when your immune system is reacting against a specific part of your body. So that could be a specific cell type, such as type one diabetes, where it's reacting against the beta cells in your pancreas, so you can no longer produce insulin. Um, Of course, those are immune system disorders, but they're not the same as allergies. It is recommended that people that are immunocompromised or have autoimmune issues um, are recommended to receive the vaccine. Now, of course, you do want to consult if you're being seen by a rheumatologist or whatever your physician happens to be, you know, to often they'll do a white cell check prior to just to make sure you're in good shape. Um, but the reason that these people are included to be to, to receive the vaccine is um, because these people, people that are immunocompromised or have autoimmune disorders, are often at higher risk for severe COVID-19. So you want to make sure that you are adequately protected by getting the vaccine. That is such an important point and an important distinction. And of course, if if you guys have any concerns, I hope it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway, that you should speak to your own doctor, your own medical professional who is, you know, um, well-versed in your medical history and can advise you. Yep. All right. Let's move on to what I think will be the last myth of the day, which is I don't need the vaccine if I already had COVID-19. So even if you had COVID earlier this year or even more recently, it's actually still recommended that you get the vaccine when your turn arrives. So right now, the data suggests that protection after natural infection may only last two to three months in some individuals. So far, the data from the vaccine trials suggests that vaccine-induced immunity may actually be more long-lasting and more robust. So in these trials, we're seeing higher antibody responses after vaccination and populations of specific T cells, which both suggest um, strong memory immunity. So again, just to recap, it seems that the vaccine-induced immunity may be more robust and long-lasting than if you um, were in, infected with COVID earlier this year. So, yep, jump in, Andrea. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, obviously we can't see the future, but we're looking at the trends in the data. So obviously during these clinical trials, we're collecting large amounts of data from participants. You know, we're assessing, you know, levels of antibodies and and different types of immune cells that are popping up and, you know, whether they're specific for the, the, um, the vaccine candidates. So, you know, the other thing to consider is that when we see we have a broad diversity of 
illness severity in the case of COVID-19 patients. Some people are asymptomatic outright. Um, Some people barely know they're sick. Maybe they just lost their sense of smell. And we know some people are hospitalized. Um, Obviously, we have some people that are are dying. Um, But even people that recover didn't need hospitalization often experience these long-term, these long haulers, these long-term consequences after illness. Um, and, And typically what that means is that the immune response to the virus, which ultimately can dictate some of what your memory immunity um, develops, is going to vary amongst these people, um, both on the severity of the illness, as well as the fact that people are unique. We're genetically unique. Our immune systems are different. Um, So being able to vaccinate everyone, regardless of their prior COVID-19 history, ensures that everybody will be protected. Um, I know right now there is no policy to do any sort of antibody screening prior to vaccination. So they're just saying, you know, get your vaccine. It doesn't matter if you had COVID-19 already. Um, In the clinical trials, we did see that there were some participants who had um, evidence of a previous infection, and they did have a substantial boost in antibody response, and they had no difference in side effects. Um, So what that tells us is that there are definite benefits. If if anything, it's booster number two, right? Um, and, And so that means that you're getting a clear benefit to getting that vaccine without any risk to you. So it's not going to harm you. Um, and it will probably even help your immunity, uh, more. So Andrew, you just answered the, the question that we get all the time, which is, you know, is there any harm? You know, let's say I had it. I didn't know I had it or I, whatever. I, if I, even if I did know I had it, if I get the vaccine, will it somehow activate the virus? You know, could it make it worse? Could I get sicker? And so just to reiterate, you're saying that there is no harm to getting the vaccine, even if you've already had COVID. And if anything, it might sort of act as a booster and boost your antibody response. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think it's worth mentioning here that, you know, this virus does not live in your body. It doesn't persist in your body after you've recovered like some other unrelated viruses can, um, like the the chickenpox virus, uh, varicella zoster. It's very genetically distinct from that. So once you've recovered, it's not like you have virus still living in your body that you could even in theory reactivate. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's up to up to you, right? If, if you've had COVID within the last three months, um, if you want to give others on the list a chance who haven't been infected, a chance to get the vaccine first, that's very noble of you. That's your call. Um, but it sounds like ultimately everyone who has recovered from COVID should plan to get the vaccine. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, I hope we've answered a lot of the questions that you guys have had. Um, as as I said, you know, we we post quite a bit in between episodes. Um, if you have any questions for us, we we always welcome your messages. Feel free to reach out to us. Um, and I'll, I know I'm going to turn it over to Andrew to bring us home, but just want to wish you all a happy and healthy holiday season, Um, whatever it is that you celebrate. I know this year is very different for all of us. And um, yeah, let's hope that next year is better than this one.
<laughs> yeah, good, good point, Jess. Um, thanks everybody for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you like our pod, please share with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Next week on the pod, we're going to switch gears and we're going to discuss the term organic. Uh, we're going to talk about what it means and what it doesn't mean. Um, we will obviously continue to pro- provide updates on COVID-19, on COVID-19 vaccine progress. Um, and that will be predominantly on our social media accounts. So be sure to follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Unbiased SciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science.